This is a supplemental episode to The Iron Heel, which includes our full interview with historian Dr. Eric Loomis about the labor movement in the early 20th century. Uh, hello, I am Edward Einhorn, the writer and director of this adaptation of The Iron Heel, and I will be talking with Eric Loomis about the history of labor, especially around 1908 when Jack London originally wrote the novel. Eric Loomis is Associate Professor of History at the University of Rhode Island. He's the author of three books, Out of Sight, The Long and Disturbing Story of Corporations, Outsourcing Catastrophe, written in 2015, Empire of Timber, Labor Unions in the Pacific Northwest Forest in 2016, and A History of America in Ten Strikes, which was written in 2018. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Glad to be here. Just want to start with a little bit about you. If you could just tell uh, us a little bit about your work on labor history and how you got involved in that area. Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, I'm a labor historian. I am uh, interested in particularly in sort of educational sort of em- enterprises that popularize labor history and create narratives for the public in ways that move beyond simple romanticizing of the past labor movement, but to really understand its complexities in order that we create a better labor movement today. My own personal interest uh, is a combination of things. You know, I was in graduate school many years ago at the University of Tennessee. I was involved in organizing a union there and uh, other, other campaigns like that. And, you know, I also grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the 1980s and early 90s when there was a lot of battles uh, between environmentalists and the labor movement over spotted owl protection and other environmental protections. And so as a scholar, I work on trying to uh, find ways to bridge uh, the differences between the environmental and labor movement. But I'm also, of course, uh, again, interested in these broader kind of discussions of labor as well, again, in order that we can really learn from the past and understand the structural issues that have gotten in the way of real uh, left-leaning democracy in this country uh, to try to move that conversation forward a little bit. So as you know, Jack London is a socialist and a lot of the book deals with socialism as well as labor. Could you just uh, sort of distinguish for us the labor movement of the early 20th century versus the socialist movement of the time? Well, sure. I mean, the labor movement is tremendously complicated in, in, say, the early 20th century. I mean, there were a lot of socialists who were in the labor movement, but there were a lot of anti-socialists in the labor movement as well. You know, this is a time period in which Americans are really finally coming to grips with the reality of industrial capitalism. So if you look at the late 19th century, for instance, there's a lot of kind of one-off ideas about how to fix industrial capitalism that don't really challenge the overall system. Uh, Some of these include the writings of Edward Bellamy, uh, which was tremendously popular at the time, the single tax of Henry George, Chinese exclusion, the eight-hour day, uh, et cetera. There was just a number of ideas that basically started at the position that if we just fix this one thing, capitalism will, will work. And this is very popular with large swaths of the American working class, especially native born whites. And, uh, you know, socialism um, is, is, you know, a series of ideologies. It's not really just one thing, but was a, a whole sort of constellation of ideas, uh, many of which are imported from Europe and come to the United States through immigrants, uh, through German immigrants that are fleeing political repression beginning after the uh, 1848 revolution, but then really picking up in the 1870s and 80s. 
uh, as well as Jewish immigrants uh, who are coming over, especially from what is today uh, the Baltic states or Russia, uh, who are involved in the Jewish Bund and uh, who are uh, who are, are really bringing like pretty complicated ideas of a radical change to the American economy into the United States. And you know, and so the you know socialism broadly conceived is a form of government in which in which rather than uh, economic activity being created in in service of private profit, it is created in service of the collective needs of the people. Again, at the time, we're talking 1908, say, when, when London writes The Iron Heel, that, that could mean anarchism, it could mean the IWW's form of syndicalism, it could mean Eugene Debs and that form of socialism, it could be the municipal socialism that a lot of the German immigrants get into, things like, you know, um, collective ownership of, uh, of public utilities, um, that's a relatively moderate form. So it's, it's quite complicated, um, both the labor movement and socialism at this time. But fundamentally, right, socialism is demanding public ownership. So socialism is demanding a collective response uh, and collective ownership of resources. And, and a lot of the labor movement, again, particularly the native-born labor movement, might be extremely uncomfortable with those ideas, uh, even as, as late as 1908. And so you will have large sectors of the labor movement that are supporting the Republican Party, for instance, uh, at a time when the Republican Party is, is totally owned by uh, by plutocrats. Um, uh, and, and you know, there, there's all kinds of historical reasons for that. But the point is, is that, you know, that, that there's the, the working class in this country is, is a, a tremendously complicated and diverse group of individuals. And uh, socialism appealed to some and did not appeal to others. Yeah, and I, I read in your History of American Ten Strikes, uh, the IWW actually expelled uh, some members because they were tying the movement too much to socialism, they felt. Was that, is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a figure in American socialism named Daniel DeLeon. And DeLeon, basically, he was a tyrant. He kind of wanted to be an American Lenin. And he wants to sort of hijack this organization for his own sort of vision of, of socialist change. And, I, you know, that made him, other than his relatively small number of allies, uh, incredibly unpopular in a, a movement, you know, the IWW initially springs out of miners in places like Colorado and Idaho, the Western Federation of Miners. And these were fairly independent guys who were not particularly interested in being, you know, the, the, the followers of a single movement leader. I mean, the, you know, when we think of the IWW, for instance, you know, the most famous wobbly is Big Bill Haywood, but, but Haywood's hardly a Lenin, right? He's not a, he's not a dictator issuing party policy. You know, I mean, it's a fairly democratic organization and it's 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 very decentralized. Right. And so the idea of this individual such as De Leon coming in and, and becoming a Lenin like figure was pretty revolting to a lot of these people. And and in fact, what it was doing you know, the IWW's found that in 1905, by 1908, it really hasn't done anything. And that's in part because it's totally torn between you know, De Leon and, and, and the others. And so it's not really until they kick him out that it becomes an organization that's actually uh, useful in organizing workers. Speaking of the IWW, so uh, just to define terms, the industrial workers of the world, uh, which are also called the Wobblies, they were based in Chicago, right? And then the book actually goes from West Coast, uh, the San Francisco area where, where Jack London is, and ends in Chicago. And my... Uh, impression, if I'm correct, is that there's also a whole different society, uh, you know, a group of uh, in the labor mo- uh, movement in the East Coast in New York. 
Could you sort of distinguish regional uh, ideas in terms of and the significance of Chicago in the labor movement at the time? Sure. I mean, the the real critical issue here is is the role of immigration, that that different groups of immigrants are in different areas. And so, you know, in in a place like New York, uh, let's say the socialist part of the labor movement is very heavily uh, Jewish, a lot of women leaders. Uh, you know, a lot of people coming out of the textile industries. Um, you know, Chicago is is more, uh, you know, less Jewish, more Catholic, more Orthodox, you know, less connected to, uh, you know, the Jewish Bund, but also very heavily connected to the German forms of socialism uh, that have developed, uh, you know, that, that were brought over to there. And, and the other thing about Chicago is that, you know, it really by the 1880s becomes uh, kind of the quintessential American city in some ways, the the, the hub uh, connecting the nation from east to west, the hub connecting the movement of natural resources everywhere, the hub in which, you know, the the, the big meat packing, uh, you know, where the, the cows uh, would be transferred from a Texas or a Kansas and put into product in these giant factories in Chicago and then sent across the nation. And so you've kind of specific sort of labor movement um, that develops around that. And then, you know, on the West Coast, you know, San Francisco is very immigrant heavy as well. But, you know, on the West Coast, uh, you you have a a kind of a different kind of a labor movement, one that's really based uh, very largely in extractive industry, one that's more rural. And this is where the IWW, for instance, has a lot of success in the timber camps, on the farms and in the mines, the isolated American West. And, uh, you know, these, the, the other part about the American West is that it is more male-dominated. I mean, just strictly population-wise, uh, most of these relatively isolated, particularly mining and timber uh, communities, uh, don't have a lot of women in them. And so you have a, a very sort of uh, overtly masculine labor movement in much of the West that I think is, is quite appealing to uh, Jack London, who's sort of has a lot of obsessions about gender uh, anyway. He actually look down on the East Coast Jewish intellectualism. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's anti-Semitic moments as well, but then eventually started dating a, uh, well, not dating, having an affair with a woman who was part of that East Coast Jewish intellectual movement. So that was a sort of funny development that happened with him. I want to talk about the music in uh, the show. So we use the music from the IWW songbook, The Wobblies. We have a group we call The Warblies. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of music in the labor movement at the time? Sure. I mean, the, even though the United States at this time is, at that time, is much more multi-ethnic even than it is today, and particularly with the sheer number of languages that are being spoken, oftentimes in the same workplace, it's also much more of a singing culture than it is today. You have a, a world in which information is shared differently, and it's a very oral culture. And, and that could be, you know, the reading of newspapers, in, in sort of a public way, and it can also mean the building of solidarity through singing. And so, you know, the IWW songbook is sort of the iconic uh, vision of that, where people will learn these very simple songs, and even if their English isn't very good, and of course many Wobblies were not native-born English speakers, they could follow along, learn those words, and, and sort of sing together. But you also would have in your, you know, Jewish immigrant communities, your Italian immigrant communities, other immigrant communities that are also organizing uh, around labor, uh, singing cultures there too. So yeah, you know, the the role of, of song in the labor movement is something that is, or in progressive movements more broadly, is a little bit lost today, you know? I mean that, you know, people will sing Solidarity Forever or whatever at, at, at events, but that's a hundred year old song. 
there's not a lot of new labor songs that are being developed, right? The, when the IWW songbook is created, like these are new songs written at the time. You know, Ralph Chaplin writes Solidarity Forever one night uh, in, a, in a hotel room in Chicago, you know, after witnessing a, a labor struggle. And th- that kind of thing's not really happening today. You know, our, our labor songbook, such as it is today, is is old. And I think it's suggestive that the ways in which music was so central to organizing 120, 115 years ago, uh, and even 70 and 80 years ago, as people such as Woody Guthrie or, or Pete Seeger, but uh, and that's kind of been lost today. Speaking about the modern movement versus the movement of 1908, how do you think modern figures such as AOC or Bernie Sanders relate to that movement of 1908? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, from a historical perspective, anyway, you know, the ideas that are being articulated by a uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders uh, are not really all that radical. You know, I mean, the reality is that most of the ideas that even Bernie is articulating were kind of mainstream liberalism in the 1970s. And, and are, the fact that they've been revived today is kind of a sign of how much was lost from the history of 20th century radicalism that that pretty much, you know, the kind of policies that an Ed Muskie or Hubert Humphrey would have been articulating in Congress in 1974 are seen as radical today. Um, I, I think that what that, that the the real connection between a Bernie and a Eugene Debs or a, an AOC and an Elizabeth Gurley Flynn or however you want to create these connections uh, is one of inspiration, right? That they, there's this understanding that there's this socialist tradition in America of people fighting for uh, or fighting against economic injustice, and people take inspiration from. Bill Big Haywood and Emma Goldman and, you know, so many others without necessarily always pushing really, truly socialist ideas that are being that are being inspired by that. In other words, I guess part of it is I keep waiting for the socialism to come with the with the socialist talk. There's a lot of sort of pretty, pretty uh, intense and very real socialist rhetoric and the policies are still pretty, pretty moderate in many ways. Now that's okay. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem, but I think that there's a lot of inspiration from past socialist figures. Uh, but I think that we started at a point, you know, 10 years ago or so when, you know, around time of Occupy, when people started really thinking about left-leaning economics again and started really realizing that the system of capitalism was, it was a big lie that we, we've sort of have made a lot of progress in those 10 years toward articulating a different kind of future, but we're still behind where we need to be. So th- there's a lot that we can learn uh, from a Haywood, from a London, from a, a, a Goldman and a, a Gurley Flynn and all of these, you know, all these people from the past, as well as, as rank and file workers whose, uh, you know, names and, and individual stories may be lost, but, but who engaged in tremendous sacrifice to make a better world for themselves. I want to just go back for a second to, you were talking about a little bit of the anti-immigrant mentality uh, among some of the workers in London's time. And clearly that anti-immigrant mentality still exists today. It's something, it's something that Trump exploited and racism as well. I mean, you can certainly look at London's work and see that when he was talking about the working class, he really meant the white native born working class more, much more than any other type of working class. And the immigrants were seen at times as a threat to the white working class. How do you think the connection between labor and, and race has evolved over the last century? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that, that, that uh, unfortunately, the labor movement was at the front lines of, of immigration restriction. 
you know, for a very, very long time. Uh, you know, the, the labor movement largely defined itself as native-born white men and really excluded others. And, and here we're talking about, you know, relatively conservative parts of the labor movement, such as the American Federation of Labor. But we're also talking about the Knights of Labor. And we're talking about people like Jack London, who were really radical, but yet could not overcome this idea of who was a proper American and, and who wasn't. You know, uh, one of the, the unfortunate facts of American labor history is that the first important national law that comes out of the labor movement is the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which is a product of the California labor movement in the 1870s and 1880s before it's enacted in 1882. And this is sort of the world in which Jack London is growing up in, in Oakland, that after you have the anti-Chinese movement, it quickly uh, shifts to an anti-Japanese movement. Of course, you have anti-Semitism in there. And, and so, you know, this has always been a problem in the United States. And, and I think that one of the biggest reasons why in America we don't have a, a, a working class that is as mobilized as some other nations, and we don't have the kind of tradition of socialism as some nations, is that uh, Americans, frankly, have chosen their uh, race identity over their class identity. And by this, I don't mean in terms of, you know, so-called identity politics today. Uh, I'm talking about through much of American history that, that, that white workers are making these choices, right? Um, and that, and I think that this is really critical because I, I think that in modern labor discussions, there's sometimes uh, a desire to not talk about race and, and to talk about class solidarity. But but by by doing that, by not talking about race, we're actually erasing uh, the lived experience of a huge portion of the working class whose lives are defined in part by by race. And that too often the people who don't want to really talk about race today but claim to be on the left, they have some pretty not great views on race themselves. Now, uh, the one thing I'll say, though, uh, is that as a movement itself, the labor movement today is is – less racist than it's ever been, that the AFL-CIO has really moved in recent decades to being a major uh, ally of immigrant groups, major unions such as SEIU really see immigrants as the future and have been effective in organizing immigrants. And so, you know, whereas even in the 1970s, you had this very nationalist labor movement that was very skeptical of immigrants and there was a lot of, say, anti-Asian sentiment as, as there's Japanese products entering the nation and such. Today, uh, the labor movement is, is really right on the front lines of immigration reform. It doesn't mean that the whole rank and file is going with them. Certainly, those traditions of nationalism and racism still exist. But at the leadership level, there has been significant advancements over the last 30 years, which is you know one of the good things we can say about the recent labor movement. I want to talk about the idea of a general strike because... It's a plot point in the novel. There's a huge general strike that turns America temporarily away from war, or at least uh, London envisions there might be. And of course, you've written a book on the history of strikes. Can you provide some context about how those strikes operated and what they accomplished in London's time? Sure. So the idea of the general strike is one that remains very common today. You know, I would say 10% of the emails that I get from you know, everyday readers are asking about the general strikes. And I think that we want to look at these strikes seriously, but also consider a little bit why they seem so appealing today. The very There's been very few general strikes uh, in American history, but they were part of the IWW vision of revolution 
uh, was something like London uh, writes about. You know, it was a syndicalist idea where, you know, the working class would arise in a spontaneous general strike and overthrow capitalism. And then after that, you know, the world is a better place. Um, and uh, that didn't really ever happen. Uh, there are a few general strikes at this time. There, there's one in New Orleans in 1892. Uh, there is uh, a little later uh, the Seattle general strike of 1919. You have general strike in San Francisco in 1934, in Oakland in 1946. So there are there are a few. As a general rule, they come out of the. They're not a spontaneous eruption of working class anger. They come out of the established labor movement. Oftentimes, uh, they are. Uh, don't even have particularly radical demands such as Seattle in 1919 or Oakland in 1946 or New Orleans in 1892. They are of demands that are mostly the demands of the unions uh, themselves, and they see those general the, uh, the idea of a general strike, of, of a solidarity strike that uh, includes all workers as um, a, a way to achieve those pretty concrete demands. They are often very threatening uh, to the established labor movement, to the bigwigs at the national level, and so they tend you know, those few times they tend to get crushed uh, in part because they threaten the power of the big labor bureaucrats. So there's that to them. But but I, I, I think that there's also a romanticizing of the general strike today. Um, and, and what I always tell people when they want to talk about general strikes today is, and, and, and is that, A, if it happens again, it's going to again come out of the established labor movement. You know, in 2019, early 2019, we had a really remarkable moment when the government was shut down and uh, Association of Flight Attendants head Sarah Nelson calls for a general strike in a public forum to end the government shutdown. And of course, that's effective in that, you know, a couple of days later, a few uh, air traffic controllers decide not to show up for work because they're sick and not getting paid. It shuts down a couple of airports and the and the, the government shutdown ends. And, and that kind of brought the general strike back into the public uh, sphere in a way that it hadn't before. But it, once again, it comes out of an established labor leader. Uh, who's seeing this as a tactic. And, and I think that if, if there is going to be a general strike in the future, even though technically it's illegal right now, thanks to the Taft-Hartley Act of, of 1947, but that it's going to come out of the established labor movement. And if you don't want it to, you know, if, if you have this kind of vision of, of a general strike spontaneously happening, the thing I would say is, you know, you're going to have to organize your friends, but you're going to have to also have to organize like your coworkers you don't like, you know, your racist family members, because these are the people, right? That's the general strike. It's not this vanguard of people that are abstracted. These are real people with the real problems that real people have. And if it's a general strike you want, then we have to figure out a way to talk to the working class who might very well not initially be receptive to these ideas and that you, maybe we don't have good relationships with. So I guess I have a complicated relationship to the conversations around a general strike, because I think that Quite often, it's used as a way for people on the left to talk about a revolution or talk about a, a massive change without being that engaged in the, in the actual dirty politics uh, that is that that kind of big change requires. So, uh, just going to ask you one more question. So, um, I had mentioned before this um, affair that uh, London has with this New York intellectual uh, Jewish woman, and because of his relationship with her, he became more interested in the role of women in labor and tried to write about a little bit about that in, in he tried to incorporate that a little bit into the Iron Heel. So what was the role of women in labor at 
that time. I, I know you said that it was a little stronger on the East Coast and the West Coast, and you talked about a few of the important figures of the, of the time when London was writing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we kind of have a vision, and this is a perhaps a media-produced vision, although it's one with a long history of, of when we think, you know, if I, if I just say the term worker, who is a worker? to my students, the kind of media vision that people often come up with is like a white guy in a union jacket inside of a factory. But but the reality is that women have always played a critical role in uh, the American workplace and also in the American labor movement. Now, that doesn't mean that they were treated equally uh, by the men who ran the movement, but a lot of the leading strikes of the time, uh, especially around London's time, are led by women. Um, and so 1909, for instance, uh, in New York, you have the uprising of the 20,000. Uh, which is a, uh, a women-led, mostly young immigrant, Jewish and Italian uh, strike against uh, the sweatshops in which they work. And uh, they have you know, some moderate victories, but these are the same workers who then get killed in the Triangle Fire two years later. So that's one moment. Um, women are uh, you know, often playing a huge role in strikes. Uh, the strike in, in 1912, the Bread and Roses strike, is both men and women, but you know, women are, are, are playing very critical roles there. Oftentimes, women are, you know, even in all male workplaces or mostly male workplaces, uh, women are playing critical roles in 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 support uh, ways, such as uh, providing food and, and collective kitchens and things of this nature. But you know, I, I think that that women have always been in the workforce in large numbers and have always been in the labor movement in large numbers. It's just that. Even not only in the media, but in the established labor movement of the time, particularly, say, the American Federation of Labor, the ideal is so strongly, so strong that, it, you know, the, the proper role of, of worker is a, a, a white man who is being paid a living wage that is able to keep his wife at home is such an ideal that even though you have all of these women who are joining the workforce and are often as radical as any man could ever think of being, uh, that you don't really have the AFL wanting to organize them very well. And so, you know, when you have these strikes by women, like, you know, Samuel Gompers and other AFL leaders are, are really ambivalent about it because uh, it's not really the role that they often see for women. But uh, a, a deeper look at the labor movement suggests that really from the beginning of the labor movement, going all the way back to the 1830s and 40s with the the, the, the women uh, in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, who were leading labor movements there for a better uh, equality all the way up to the present um, where you have women who are, you know, playing a, a huge role in unions such as SEIU or in the teachers unions leading strikes there, that women are actually central to the labor movement. And if we don't center the experience of women in our understanding of the labor movement, both past and present, we're actually just playing into, um, you know, kind of sexist ideas about uh, about who are the real workers. And, and I think that actually obscures a lot about uh, just to the extent in which women ha have played leadership roles, uh, even if they're not always allowed to become the heads of the unions, on the ground, they're playing critically critical leadership roles. Thank you so much. It was really fascinating. Thank you for, for talking with us. This supplemental episode was produced by Untitled Theatre Company Number 61, a theater of ideas. Musical arrangements are provided by Richard Philbin, who also provided all of the instrumentals. The episode was sound designed and edited by Ian W. Hill. Funding for this podcast would be made possible in part by grants from the Lower Manhattan Community Council, the Puffin Foundation, and the Alma and Mara Shapiro Fund. My name is Edward Einhorn, and I'm the writer and director. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. 